So here's the thing, entrepreneurs, leaders, salespeople, we all want to create consistent, repeatable, and scalable ways to grow our business and our income. And we want to do it better, faster, and more seamlessly. Why? So we can actually enjoy our lives, take vacations, and spend the quality time we want with the people that we love. How do we do all this without spending a fortune or running ourselves ragged? That's the big question, and this show is dedicated to the answer. If you had access to market data, trends for all things housing that the Wall Streeters pay a fortune for, hedge fund managers, analysts, and more use to make decisions about equities, public markets, what's going to happen next, make better predictions. If you had that information, do you think you could make better decisions about the national and your local market? Could you? Could you create more certainty, more confidence, not just in yourself, but also with the buyers and sellers that you're looking to serve? I know the answer is yes. And if you're like me, you believe that knowledge with action is real power. It's not just knowledge, my friends, but it's knowing and being in action. If you feel the same way I feel, you're going to love today's show because I have the legend for the second time on my podcast, Ivy Zellman. So Ivy, thank you so much for being on the show. How are you doing? Doing great. Thanks for having me back. I think the last time we had our podcast, the world was uh, beginning to end, right? I, I was, I mean, I, we, we talked off camera for my friends that are out there. Um, Ivy has been someone that was on my radar for a long time and we finally get a chance to do a podcast and I don't remember the exact date, but it was, I, I think three days later. I can tell you it had to be like right before we shut down. Yeah. It I was gonna be like say, a week or so before yeah, I, March 17th, something like that. And, and, and I'm going to, I'm going to make a statement to open up this podcast before I dig in with so many you know questions. Cause Ivy is. Ivy is a data nerd who understands our industry more than anybody else, but also has the beautiful ability to express it in a way that all of us get so we can make better decisions. But do you remember the conversation we were talking about with interest rates? Yeah, interest rate trumps COVID. Yes. And and you know what? Remember, so just being very candid with my listeners, right? As I always am, we we both days later were like, oh, I don't know, I don't know if that's the right thing. And and look, I'm just saying to my own listeners, like, there's no doubt, like. COVID has had a lot of negative impact on a lot of people and it's it's obviously very real. And yet we live, Ivy, in this world of the tale of the two, right? We've got tragedy. We're talking about fires in California. We've got, you know, social unrest, protests. We've got unemployment. And yet housing is the exact opposite. It is completely bananas this year. So we want to unpack all of that. Um, so to start, Ivy, I wrote down in residential, right? Because the people that are listening are mostly going to be residential. Could you give us the state of the union beyond interest rates being low, which we're going to talk about more, supply and demand? What else is going on in this industry that might my, my listeners need to really understand today? Sure. Well, as we know, going into 2020, the market was fundamentally um, accelerating and, and pretty robust after 18s and first half of 19 slowing as interest rates had risen to 30 year fixed to 5%, which did slow the market down, but then rates fell and we started re-acceleration. And so if we just look at world pre-COVID, we had fundamentals strong from inventory that was extremely tight. And we also had you know, favorable affordability. And we had this demographic tailwind that you know, millennials were finally aging into the need for single family homes. Right. They needed to have more space for growing families. So that was the backdrop. And I think the builder um, community really had been late in this cycle 
to be willing to go what we call out to the exurbs to provide more affordable housing, fearful of that, you know, millennials only want to walk to work and they won't drive what we call drive to qualify. But the realtor community was screaming and saying, build us, they will, if you build it, they will come. So really it wasn't until 2016, 17 that the builders were pioneering as they should, as they always have, and they were willing to drive further out and buy land and start building affordable housing. Boom, COVID hits. And, and wait, one, one other thing, prior to COVID, we yeah. really had very, very tight market conditions, but we had what we like to call a, a tale of two markets, where we had this unbelievable deficit in entry-level home availability. We saw it on the resale side and new construction, and it was on fire. We had very, very strong first-time move-up, but when we got into the second-time move-up and the luxury in single family, it was languishing and, and really lackluster is the best way to describe it. And in some markets, we were actually seeing deflation. And that deflation was more prevalent in, in the condo market in New York City and Miami. And so really, really that tale of two markets was very much the case. And part of it, my opinion, was that the consumer is you know, overall looking at the potential to make a decision for a discretionary upgrade. And they either felt uncomfortable to leave their existing home because they didn't have enough equity, so they're choosing not to have an upgrade, and they just choose to age in place as they get older. So yeah. you and I in a cohort, if we talked about people in their 50s, you certainly don't look 50, but if you talk to, talk to anyone who's in their 50s, they're likely to have been in their home for you know, maybe 15, 20 years and, and maybe will be there forever. But if you talk to a 20-year-old or 24-year-old, in a given year, over 50% of a 20 to 24-year-old cohort will move. In my cohort, and I won't tell you where I am, between 50 and 54, 9% move in a given year. So as the boomers and the, the graying population, it was constraining inventory because we're aging in place as a population. Mm -hmm. But the biggest factor, Tom, was that when you have mortgage rates at, let's say, 4 4.5%, that actually equates to nearly, if you look at the number of mortgage holders mm -hmm. that are, are homeowners that have a mortgage, that have a mortgage rate at four and a half percent or lower, that is roughly 66% of homeowners. If you looked at those that have a mortgage rate below 5%, it's 80%. So what happens to the move up market is you basically sit here and say, I'm gonna leave this awesome 4% mortgage rate to go buy a house and have to pay four and a half and pay up for that. Yep. So that really was an impediment for mobility. And, and I want to go back from a timing standpoint. Are we really still talking about that sort of post-summer 2019? Or are you, are you saying all of 2019 reflected? I'd say that? the move-up market started slowing in 15. I'd say yeah. 15 yeah. was I really agree. the beginning of what has been a very challenging part of our housing market. And it was really a combination. As you talk to the brokers, you'd say, well, sellers have these old houses. as a mismatch. They've got these big, big let's say, um, mansions that are boxy, have low ceilings, they don't have the latest technological cap or technical capabilities, yeah. and yet they're not willing to lower the price um, because maybe they never had enough equity appreciation or they just don't think it's worth that. And yet you've got young people and old that want brand new homes, that want open floor plans, they yes. want high ceilings, they want to have Wi-Fi certified every corner of the house. So there was this mismatch yeah. and there was a tug of war of who's going to capitulate first. So you have you know, in Connecticut, I, we looked at Greenwich, Connecticut and just left it for dead. I mean, it, it, equity values were still below the prior bust. Right. So now we fast forward, okay? The economy shuts down in March. 
we're all convinced that, you know, there's no question housing is going to go down as much as it might in one or two quarters, as much as it did at the worst point of the great housing bust. Yep. But then we come out of it. And yet, even during that period, we didn't expect home prices to decline. So if you saw our forecast, Tom, we were still looking back on March 25th when we put out our new housing metrics that home prices would increase 3%. Yep. And we've since now raised that to 5.5%, given that housing is low away. But yes. what's really changed is that we now have a move-up market that's on fire. So post-COVID, the tail of two markets is no longer the case. And why is that? Why is the move-up market, despite being boxy homes or having, you know, not the latest renovations, they're selling. We have Connecticut homes in, West, in Westport and, and Greenwich that are selling multiple bids, three to five million dollar homes. It's out there for yep. years. Yep. So that has really been a function of people that are, are, are not willing to live in the urban core. It yep. started out New York, obviously, because of people getting the virus and fear of being in a densely populated market and people recognizing, you know, I don't have to stay in the city. And then they started thinking about, well, I'm working remote today because I have no choice. That's right. Roughly for you, for the listeners, roughly six to 7% of households in the United States pre-COVID worked remote. And when you think about what that number could look like um, five years from now, is it a double? Is it a triple? Where is it going to go? A lot of that will depend on employers willingness to provide consumers flexibility. Ivy, did you say six to seven or 67? Six to seven. Six to 7%. And today one could argue it's 95%. I mean, you know, I, that's, I, I don't know that exact number, but I'm guessing it's. It's probably right. Exponentially. Right. You have to take out those workers that can't work remotely. Yep. And, and what we're hearing from many of the largest employers is that especially those like in technology where they're really looking to retain the best talent they yeah. can, they need to give those employees flexibility. And in some cases, the flexibility of working 100% remotely on a go forward basis. So yeah. now all of a sudden you take the tri-state area and you have employees that are working in the city that say, you know, I'm going to go live out in, in various parts of the tri-state area and, and their employees are, and you don't have to come back to the city, but maybe once or twice a week, Yep, or maybe yep. you can pick up and move anywhere in the country. We don't care. You can work remote. So I have clients, hedge fund clients that have left the city of Chicago, have left the city of New York, and they're moving either southeast, southwest, and they're looking not only for what is uh, more favorable climates than our, our crazy northeast and midwest, but we also have more favorable taxes. We yep. have more pro-business, and people are tired of being in these cities where frankly, you know, they don't find the housing is, is really not attractive for what they're paying. So yeah. you can go to Austin. This one client of mine literally sold his condo in um, Chicago, or actually he didn't sell it. I think he just listed it. And he bought like 20 acres in Austin and he's building like a compound for him and his family. And he's going to spend less, assuming he'll ever sell it or he'll have to walk right, away. Right. Yes. So there's that, you know, it, it's just crazy. Like when we came out of sort of this understanding like housing's taking off. Mm -hmm. We did this piece, which you can buy it online. It's called a uh, bullish stance on housing. Housing takes center stage. And housing right now, when you think about it, my husband calls it our COVID castle. You know, we are here all the time. And we, when you think about why the consumer is so focused on improving the quality of their space, that they want to have the ability to have family and guests over. So they want bigger space for dining. They want more uh, space for their outdoor activities. 
they want two maybe different places home. to work, right? Two different places right. to work and kids. And their kids yeah. to be online or their adult children are moving back. But wait a minute. Yeah. I'm worried about my in-laws because I don't, or my parents, they're yeah. elderly and I don't want them to wind up in a nursing home. So I need a, a you know, a, a suite for them. It just, the list goes on and on and on. And guess what? No one's traveling. They're not going to sporting events. Yeah. They're not going to entertainment. We're not going to concert. So what do we do? We start looking at housing. We start to, how do we better our current situation? And by the way, we're no longer stuck because mortgage rates are dropping that now I can make sense of it. And I can buy, instead of buying a $900,000 house, I can afford a million dollar home with the same payment because rates have fallen hundred basis points. Bingo. But there's a double-edged sword to that. I'm worried about that. So, so if you're I, a broker and if yeah. you're listening, you've got to get people to do it today. You've got to get them to trade up today. And I'll tell you why, because the mortgage market, if the backlash, so we just um, have so many great mortgage contacts that today the refi market's just booming beyond as everyone knows yeah. and the purchase yeah. market. But what's going to happen is if rates go up, the more every day when they refi someone into a 3% 30 year fixed rate, they're never moving <laughs> because right. that rate is not transferable. So right. we're going to have a very, very um, immobile housing market. And so your consumers that you're servicing as the broker community, you've got to tell them there's urgency here. And why can rates go up? So we got a lot of crap. Okay, hold, hold on. Hold on, Ivy. I just got to unpack because you, you've, you've, so, so for everyone listening, do you understand why I wanted Ivy on the show? You've answered three of my questions already. So. Go back to, so I want, I want the listener to listen. She's saying you need to call every person that's had any thoughts of moving up that they need to move up now. And it's not some, you know, silly sales pitch. It is your interest rate today is three. You're going to go buy your next house, an even bigger house, more expensive house. You might get 2.75. You might even get two, five. I just did a deal at 2.25, right? It's, it's bananas. And the key though is, and this is, I wanted to talk about this is that all these people are locking in these ridiculous low interest rates and then the rates start to tick up and they're like, Steve Harney, who you know, said, tell everybody to buy a house. It doesn't matter what the price is because they're going to brag about their interest rate for 20 years. But Ivy, they may not sell because of that interest rate. What's the timing on this? What do you think? So First, we have to sort of back into one of the things that just was mind blowing to me. Um, one of my girlfriends who's a high risk OBGYN for the Cleveland Clinic. Yeah. And she probably makes a half a million dollars a year. And believe me, in Cleveland, that could buy you, you know, a lot of home. And yes. she's in the same home with three kids for 15 years. And she's like, you know, we're thinking about buying a house, but we started looking at, you know, homes that are priced like at a million dollars. And, you know, we just don't think we can, you know, afford that. And I was like, first of all, when you think about what you can afford, don't look at the ticket price. That's the problem. So many consumers, they look at the absolute right. price and they'll say, oh my God, home prices are up so much, I can't afford it. And when they start to recognize and they talk to a mortgage broker or a mortgage originator, and oh my God, I can actually buy a home and I can have the same monthly payment and I could be up a few hundred thousand dollars in the, in, or a hundred plus thousand dollars. So the first right. thing you need to do yeah. is educate those in your sphere about monthly payment because with where mortgage rates are today, so why are rates gonna go up and what's gonna happen? So we actually got a lot of crap. We just hosted our annual housing summit. So if you wanna register and watch it, it's gonna be up on our website forever. And we have um, you know, some great content, but we did show our forecast 
for 2020, 21, and 22 for all our housing metrics. And we actually show that 21 is going to grow off of an incredibly surprising robust 20. But in 22, we're going to actually see some slowing and year-over-year declines. Massive pushback to that from the home builders. I didn't hear as much from the, the brokers, but the builders were just totally bitching about it. Like, oh, I think way too negative. You know, we think yeah. we can grow for the next three or four years. But so what we had to do, Tom, is we had to draw a line in the sand. You know, you've got your pandemic winners right now and your pandemic losers. Housing yeah. is certainly center stage, but so are a lot of other areas. Home improvement, cars, boats, RVs. The consumer is spending and there is no question whether stimulus is benefiting it. I think it's more just the whatever income and savings you have, you're not spending it on what you always have been. So there's more to spend elsewhere. So these pandemic winners versus our pandemic losers, which unfortunately are those that are in all these industries that are tied to being, you know, densely together or or not social distancing concerts, big, large gatherings, et cetera. Think about the conferences. You and I had a canceled conference. It's crazy. So what happens if, quote unquote, we get a vaccine and everything returns to normal and we start to see the unemployment rate and jobless claims are getting better, everything's getting better. What is going to happen is interest rates are going to go up. Interest rates are a function, they're a parameter of what the health of our economy is. As the economy gets healthier, all of a sudden rates start to back up. Now, rates are already backing up. So if you haven't focused on the 10-year yield as a a real estate agent, you need to, first of all, you need to be educated. Because if you walked into my house and you wanted to list it, I would completely take you down if you did not know some of these simple things, okay? So the 10-year yield is how mortgages are priced. They're priced off the 10-year yield. So right now, the 10-year yield has gone from, call it a 0.6 to almost 0.8. So that's only a 20 basis point change. So someone would say, well, that's not a big deal. And today, it's not necessarily a big deal from the perspective, the, the absolute number going up 20 basis points. But if we see the reasons it's going up is fear of inflation, Lumber prices are going through the roof. We've seen inflation creep up in a lot of categories. The more inflation, more rates will go up. Now, mortgages, if we look at the 30-year fixed mortgage rate today, and you know, I know this friend of mine, by the way, she did buy a house, got a 2.86% mortgage. She actually took the bank that she banked with, competed with another bank, and the, the bank, she said, oh, okay, you wanna give me a better rate? I'll move all my money to you so you can get these really great rates because there's a lot of competition for that business. And let's say the rate you get is 3% though from from the mortgage lender today. That's the general stated rate. So if you look at an 80 basis point treasury yield, 0.8 versus a 3% mortgage rate, that's 2.2% difference, or we call 220 basis points. points. Historically, that spread has been 170 basis points. So the good news for the consumer is that if refi is slow because rates are going higher, so many banks, whether it be JP Morgan, Bank of America, all the big guys are focused all on refis because they make more money, higher margin, and they've been adding capacity like crazy. If you need a job, anyone, there's, there's jobs everywhere in the mortgage market. You have to obviously get trained, entry level, start up, but there are opportunities. So what will happen if rates back up, all of a sudden these guys are focused on refis, are going to shift to purchase. And they're going to shift to purchase, and they're likely, even though they're not saying it publicly, They'll give up a half a point of margin yep. to get your purchase business. So, but, but this, is, this is not going to happen right away. So you'll see that the mortgage market's slow to adjust immediately. So your 
customers, if you're servicing customers and talking to them, as rates start to back up, and, and again, you will not be able to sell your house because others are locked in at these low rates. So the time to do it is now before interest rates go from what is an all-time record low. People need to hear that. Yeah. So pandemic slows goes away, right? Vaccine, you're saying 2022, if, if I'm paying attention to the math, right? The, the years, the economy begins to, to rebound rates go back up. I mean, we've seen this cycle before. We haven't seen interest rates at this level, but we've seen this cycle before. So if you were an agent today, what would you be expressing to your customers in email, on social, in, in newsletter, in whatever, whatever medium that they're getting out to people? Like, I don't think it's good for them to say, as the pandemic goes away and the economy gets better, rates will go up, you should buy now. But what would you recommend? Well, I think that you have to look at the combination of a market that is starved. They need to be educated to understand that inventories in the United States yep. are at an all-time record low since the data has been collected. And yep. we, we've known that for the last few years, but that constraint is not fully appreciated by those that are you know, um, homeowners that might not be focused like you and I are on the housing yep. market. Yep. So they kind of think they can be patient, they can wait, but home prices are going to continue to rise. So just like mortgage rates are going up, we don't even have mortgage rates going up, but we know home prices are going up. Yep. So if you were to look at a, a quarter point increase in mortgage rates, that's the equivalent to a 3% increase in the monthly payment. So even if rates don't go up, home prices are going to keep going higher and higher. So you need to recognize there's urgency today, otherwise you're gonna pay even more and you have the risk that rates can go higher. So right. whatever you're waiting for, there's no good reason to wait. It's time to capitalize on a market that you can go and get the most attractive financing ever on record. And if you wait, you're only gonna pay more for those homes. I have a house down the street from my house and I live in Moreland Hills, Ohio. It's uh, in Cleveland in the suburbs of a beautiful area. And there was a home probably walking distance, not even five minutes from my house. It was on the market for $850,000, which is, you know, a really nice second time move up home. Mm -hmm. And the same friend was like, you know, it's just too expensive. Within a week or two, the house was gone. It had sat there for almost a year and a half, but now it's gone. So she's like, oh, and now she paid a million dollars. So, you know, they realized they should have moved faster. So people are hesitant. They're worried. They don't know. But today it's time to really take advantage of a market that is so, in fact, robust, but it's only gonna get more challenging as we go forward. So educate them about the lack of inventory, the fact that you're at record lows, educate them about, you know, home price appreciation is only gonna go higher and that rates can only go higher. Regardless of what's happening with the pandemic, home prices are going up. Again, we forecasted a 3% increase as of March 25th. We're now at 5.9%. And we have certain parts of the country that are growing at high single, low double digits today, especially at that entry level price point. Absolutely. I'm actually looking at uh, projections on future home prices. Uh, Zellman 5.9, Fannie 4.4, NAR 4.3, Zillow 3.6, House negative 1.1. CoreLogic was at only at 0.6 over the next 12 months going into 2021. They were negative six to start. Right. Right. So, so, I mean, it's, you know, you guys can't see it if you're listening, right. But if you're watching, we talked about this with uh, the guys over at Cape, uh, keeping current matters a few days ago on a live show, like you're saying 5.9%. 
all this data just screams for my clients, you have got to be unlocking the equity of the sellers in your marketplace. You got to find the people that weren't even thinking about selling and saying, hey, listen, this is a once in a moment lifetime opportunity and you're not making a sales pitch. You can take Ivy's data and back it up and say, let's just sit down and talk about it. Right. And you know, some of the largest brokers in the country, like Howard Hanna, where yeah. you can actually take the inventory and show them how constrained it is by price point. Right. You can educate them on the monthly payment, but to go into a listing appointment and really push them to really capitalize on now. And I hear interestingly fear of yes. foreclosures because you're reading and hearing in the media that we're going to have a, another housing bus. I don't want to buy right now because I don't want to lose all my equity. Right. Yeah. So for those listening, let me explain to you the likelihood of us having a foreclosure crisis again is about 0% because I'll tell you why. Please. If you think about it, let's just take every person that's currently in forbearance, which is roughly 3.4 million people. Yeah. And if you look at those people, the majority of them, with the exceptions that might have bought within early part of 2020, have significant equity. Even yeah. your FHA borrowers in the last three years, their homes yeah. have appreciated. So yeah. when you think about a mortgage servicer who is now talking to a customer who is not able, unfortunately, they're struggling to buy their, to, to make their mortgage payment. So they're now in forbearance and forbearance is over. Do you think that the mortgage servicer is going to want to take that home back? The answer is no. Aquin, which is one of the leading loss mitigators, we spoke to them this week. They yeah. said they will do anything to keep them in their home. And there's so much equity that right. rather than them having to lose their home to foreclosure, they can sell that home and we're desperate for inventory. Yes. So they would sell that home and they would likely help the market because we're such we're in so much need. So we did this analysis. We said, okay, let's assume every borrower actually went to foreclosure all at once, mm -hmm. which it's almost impossible for it to happen all at once. Right. That would put the inventory in the United States actually above where it was at the last peak of the housing bust. Mm -hmm. So that sounds horrible. But yes. think about Tom, how much, how many foreclosures, how much individual homeowners it takes to get them modified. They're not going to come all at once. No. Even if we took just the FHA and VA borrowers that have lower credit, less equity, that if we added all that inventory to the market all at once, that would put us back to sort of a normal trend line for inventory. So right. we realize that whether it's investors that are buying for single family rental, whether it's investors that are buying for fix and flip, whether it's the iBuyer that's investing, there's so much investors that are sitting on the sideline dying for these people to go and get be foreclosed and it's not going to happen. There might be some one-off sales. So that don't worry if that's what you're hearing, it's not going to happen. Hey, it's Tom Ferry. Question, what's your favorite social media platform? Are you big on Insta? Do you love to tweet? No matter where you answer, I'd love for you to connect with me there. All you got to do is just type in at Tom Ferry and follow and let's you and I connect. I want to be able to deliver the right content, the right ideas, the ways to help you grow your business, stay fired up, keep moving, be in action and run plays that work in the platform that matters most to you. So subscribe and I'll see you there soon. So it's interesting. You now, you now answered question number four, which I wanted to talk about forbearance. But so Ivy, I'm looking at this report, months of inventory uh, of homes for sale dating back to 1999, right? When we were in a seller's market then, 
Then we got into the neutral market, which is sort of between six and seven months supply of inventory. Then you go all the way up to 2010 when we were truly in a buyer's market where we were at like almost a year supply of inventory across the country. And today we are less than three months supply, which is the single lowest number it's been in 21 years. And, and people say to me, but what if all these properties foreclose? What about? And I say, I don't want that to happen to anybody. But if it did, we'd have some inventory. And it's, it's a horrible statement, but it's, if it did, we'd have inventory. But you're, to your point, factually, it's not going to happen all on a Tuesday. Well, certainly not. And the, and the servicers don't want those assets no. foreclosed. And there's too much equity that they have. You know, a lot right. of people are, are cash poor, but house rich. Yep. And so I think that there's ways to keep them there. But one of, one of the things I'd recommend to everyone listening, don't look at the month supply. The month supply no. is a misleading way to analyze inventory. You know why? Because if sales drop dramatically, all of a sudden inventory is not at three months. It's at six months. So you have to be, that's sort of a point in time. Okay, this is how many sales we have. Therefore, inventory is here. What you want to look at is the available inventory for sale divided by households. And we look at that on an aggregate basis, and we are at an all-time record low at roughly 1.2% of households. And I can show you that, send you that chart for your listeners to think about it. But every broker, and whether I'm talking to you know, Hobie Hanner or I'm talking to you know, the biggest brokers in the country at Long & Foster, break down your local market. You've got the MLS data. Show what the inventories are, and you know you can get the household data so you can show the consumer and show them that this literally in some price points, there's today, I want to say on the entry level side, there was like a 60% decline in the level of available inventory for sale for homes priced in that entry level price point. So if someone's thinking, well, I want to, you know, I might want to buy, but the prices are up too much. They, they're not going, the home prices are still going to keep going higher. Exactly. Exactly. So the homes for sale divided by the households, could you, you could do that on a national number with 128 million homes, right? But I agree, like I'm, I'm glad you said it. No, go local. You could even go county. You could even go community and show people like really hyper-local data. That's, I mean, Ivy, I love a lot of things about you. The data that you guys put out is just, I mean, I, I, I think I get three emails a day from you guys, right? So, so I, I spent a lot of late nights reading the Zellman report. So I, I want to go back to uh, forbearance just for a second, right? So we've got three and a half million people. I've read something recently that a million of those people are actually still making payments, even though they registered for forbearance. Um, I also agree. I don't think that we're going to have a massive issue with foreclosures, right? All the data and everyone saying the same thing. We don't want these people to lose. They've got too much equity. But I guess my, my question is, is there any blind spots that we should be thinking about when it comes to that number of people in forbearance? Well, I think that there's no question that there's going to be a lot of people that might be forced to sell their homes and it might be the only alternative for them. And yet there's other uh, programs out there that have you heard about um, the, the sales leaseback programs like Easy Knock? Easy Knock. Advantage of being house rich, but unfortunately cash poor. There's going to be innovative ways to keep people in their homes, but if there is more inventory that has to come to market, those people will be able to get the mortgage paid off and have some equity. They, they might wind up living with relatives or friends or having to go to a rental and something smaller, yeah. but there's such a strong appetite. There's so much of a wall of capital that's looking to buy this asset class, and it's yeah. a great hedge against inflation. So I, I think what can go wrong, it, consumer confidence can certainly 
impact people's willingness to buy such an enormous asset class if we have a civil war because of these crazy politicians in Washington that are both uh, running for election. You know, not something like the 9-11 event that stopped the market. It's interesting, yeah. even in 2001, when we had 9-11, yeah. housing stopped for only a few months and then it just took off again. I but remember. keep in mind that when interest rates were actually rising in 1999, the market started cooling, but then the overall stock market, the bond market started saying, you know what? economy's now it's slowing so the fed's going to have to ease and the fed didn't ease until the first half of 2001 before 9-11 but the back half of 2000 if a lot of you may remember started taking off because the mortgage or the bond market started anticipating that rates were going to come down so housing even in a rising unemployment environment like we have with the tech rec housing did very well so that's what you need to recognize is that even if you're in a recession and keep people are struggling or consumer confidence is under pressure, generally, as long as it's not housing's fault, housing could weather it better. But what scares me is just something terrible that's outside of sort of the general day-to-day things that can go wrong. And it's more about social unrest and, you know, civil war. I know it sounds crazy, but, you know, that's what people are worried about right now. Okay. Earlier in this interview, uh, I, we were in a dialogue about, you know, hey, people that are 50 to 54 are doing this. People that are in their 20s are doing that. Um, I I've, I've saw, I think it was John Burns, and I don't know, I don't know if he did it, if you did it, if who did it. But could you, could you rattle off a few of those? Like if people are thinking about like, hey, age demographic, how often they move and why they move? Or do you have like, do you have a cheat sheet and I'll just send it to everybody? I mean, I, I would just say I have a slide that breaks it down by cohort, but just picture yeah. this, you know this curve going down and the older we are, the lower, you know, by the time you're in your seventies, about four or 5% of people will move in a given year. And one of the, one of the things we've heard from consumers, aren't we going to have this massive supply given the graying aging of America? And when we think about the boomers, the boomers were born between 1946 and 1964. It's really at the end of 2030 when we'll start to see it incrementally add to inventory, but it's not going to come all at once, but it's going to be a headwind in the next 10 years, we're going to have a headwind from inventory. But we look at mobility rates. So if you go back to 1998 and to 2002, the United States mobility rate was roughly 15%. Mm-hmm. So the number of people in a given year, 15% move. Fast forward to 2013 to 2018, that mobility rate was 11%. So we had been under a secular decline. Number one reason, yeah. again, aging in place, graying yeah. of America, let move less as we get older. Number two, a lack of discretionary upgrades because people either just chose that they didn't think they had enough equity in their house or lack of confidence. But the third and most important one, in my opinion, was because people could not transfer their mortgage rate. And the mortgage rate was already so low from the refi wave we had back coming out of the great bust. So now that rates have unlocked that ability to people have the ability to move, mobility rates we think are going to move up. But the big sea change that can move the mobility rate higher is really now remote work. And the United States is in a great shuffle. Ivy, you're again, you're already, you're like, you're like, basically you're teeing up my next question, which was uh, housing trends, vertical to land migration patterns. Two days ago for my friends in California, our governor Gavin Newsom was basically begging Californians to not leave begging like on television, begging people to not leave. 
I think California is a loser. I think parts of New York are going to be a loser. I think states like Arizona, Texas, Florida, better weather, better taxes. But I'm not the expert. You, you tell me what's going on with these migration patterns and when will they end? Well, first we have to recognize is that if you think about from 2010 to 2020, the overall population growth has really slowed during that prior decade. It's not, the decennial survey is not done, but the data that we show, call it overall population growth over 10 year span, roughly 6%. Households grew about 9%. So less than 1% per year. But if we look at how to break that down within states, you had states like Idaho, Nevada, Texas, Arizona, uh, Utah was at the top of the list, growing literally nearly 20% over that 10-year span. And then you had the big losers. You have Connecticut, Pennsylvania, Illinois, New York, California, growing over 10 years, less than 3%. Some were actually negative. West Virginia was negative. So what that was really more a function of what has already been underway is this great shuffle, whether it's moving down to the mountain areas, out from Northeast and and California, going to Utah, going to Idaho, going to Nevada, Arizona, or going down to the Southeast. Why has this been happening for the last decade? Mm -hmm. The biggest part of it, you can argue, is that people can have more affordability. You know, I've always said, you know, if you move to, you know, Austin versus New York, you're going to buy two or three times as much house as you can in in the tri-state area. So that's been a function of affordability, so the, the great shuffle has been well underway and those winners and losers are only going to become more pronounced. Yeah. Have you seen the site howmoneywalks.com? No, I haven't seen it. You would, you, I mean, you, you have way more advanced analytics, but this, this, it's this great little site. You go to howmoneywalks.com. Then I think you click on like the data, like get the data and it shows you a map of the United States and, and not political colors, but it says red is more people are leaving than coming in. So light pink is a lesser percentage. And then, then it's like light green, then it's dark green. Everybody's moving there in mass. And what it tracks is how much income is moving from this state to that state. And it is Ivy. I, the first time I, first time I was on there, I remember just sitting there and just saying, okay, California, I live in orange County. It'll narrow down to the County. And then it tells you, here are the top five places where people are moving to from your county and where they're moving from, right? I mean, it is, I mean, first of all, you said Idaho, Nevada, Utah. That's like those three and Collin County, which I think is Dallas, that's where everybody in California is moving to, or at least Orange County, California specifically. It is fascinating. No, I, I totally agree. And watching what we're seeing right now in New York, you think that the state of California is in trouble. I mean, my, yeah, I, know. I mean, I love New York and it's just too. bad to see what's going on in New York. But apparently this administration or the governor of Cuomo and the, the current mayor, they're talking about raising taxes on those households that make more than $100,000 a year, which is like 44% of New Yorkers. Right. And yet they are 80% of the tax base. So the people that live in New York have optionality. They don't have to stay, but yet that's where their tax revenue comes from. So the same thing in California. I mean, I read something that the legislative, um, you know, branch of, or whatever, the legislators in California were thinking about raising personal income tax to like 16.3%. 16.8. 16.8. 
quickly yeah. take it off the table. Yes. But you know, if the governor is begging, it's because he's seeing people that are migrating out of his great state that has been historically a great state and better do something about it. So the thing that I like for all the others, especially we have so many California clients, so many New York clients, so many New York City clients specifically, you're seeing it. The key to this interview with Ivy is to dig into the data and understand why. And then how do I make better decisions? How, how am I a better educator? I guarantee my New York City brokers are like, I look at the 10-year yield every day, right? But I bet the vast majority of people listening were like, oh yeah, that's probably something I should be looking at because I can then know and dictate, oh, rates are definitely going to go up. They just move the yield, right? So I hope you're getting some of this data. I, I literally, I'm doing the interview once again, and I have like five pages of notes already. <laughs> so, so, all right, Ivy, one last question. One thing before we move away from like the great shuffle, yeah. keep in mind just in, in um, historical terms, if you look at this country, all of the densely populated markets slow in growth rates relative to those that have more, um, let's say, um, space or rural areas. Right. That's where builders can build and pioneer. And today we're certainly seeing that. So it's not just because the taxes are high. It's just there's not a lot to build, right? There's in, right. in New York Tri-State area, there's no land to build new construction. Yes. The densely populated markets will always underperform those that are more spacious and have more land. So that's something that is prevalent with even without taxes. So we just need to keep that in mind. For sure. And especially if you think about like we uh, we did our annual summit back in uh, September and one of my guest speakers, a, a great New York City guy, Gary Vaynerchuk, said, hey, look, I mean, here's the reality. All my employees are remote. So if if I could go get on a train and go for 90 minutes and buy a killer house with land to raise my family. I'm going to do that. And he, and he literally says to the entire audience, and if you know land out there, I would like to buy it because builders are going to want that. I mean, and, and you're watching now he's not a real estate guy, but he's the CEO of a company that has locations around the world. And he's seeing what's happening with his own remote workers. I guess the question is, and, and I don't know if you got insight on this. Do you think that becomes the new norm for the next decade or so? Do you see people going back to the office? I, I do think that there will be people that return to the office. Uh, in New York, uh, it just saddens me right now, the occupancy for the office market's 10%. I know. Yeah. And I think it's not dissimilar in the Bay Area. So, you know, we have employees, we have a New York City office, and we slowly have some employees that are coming back. We actually have said, we'd like you to return full-time in January with some flexibility. Yeah. But I do think young people want to be in a vibrant city. And I don't think that the office market is doomed forever. But there's going to be people like myself, when my lease comes up, that's very expensive in New York City, I might not need as much space that I have right now, because more people might work one or two days a week. So I think we're going to have a glut of inventory. But I think that you will have more people, it might not go back to where it was, certainly, we're gonna have yeah. a problem in the office market. But I do think there's you know, the benefit of collaboration and people getting together and being creative. Yeah. We see, especially for young people, we have two relatively newer, younger analysts on our research team. And, you know, for them to work remote, it's not the same experience by working yeah. together and brainstorming and, you know, having your whiteboard and really getting deep into what could be really the proprietary next huge thematic piece that we're doing. So I think there's a benefit to it. But, you know, I've always worked remote um, really from being, my husband's a, a Clevelander and when 20 plus years ago, he's like, you know, I want to move and be near my family. So we moved here 20 years ago. So I know it's, you can do it depending on, you know, your business and, and if, if you're as productive and your, your colleagues and the people that report to you want that, I think more and more employers are going to allow that. 
it's not going to be, hey, draw a, a, a line in the sand and you, yeah. if you don't come back, you're out of here. Yeah. And frankly, that would just be shooting yourself in the foot. Right. Right. Because in certain, I mean, one 1,000% yes, though. I, it's interesting when I talk to my commercial real estate friends, you know, if you're on the apartment side, you're killing it right now because the money is there. They can get loans there. You know, there's lots of deals happening, but if you're in the commercial high rise space right now, they are, they're feeling it. Hotels are feeling it. They're feeling it. And I, you know, just as a human being, I just feel bad for those business owners, but I, Right. And I saw, even when you said it, I saw you almost like frown when you were like, I just 10% occupied. We're, we're in our building right now. We've got, I don't know, 42, 45,000 square feet, two floors. And there's one, two, three, four, five of us. I'm like, Brenda, you get the seventh floor, have fun, take your skateboard and go ride around. Like that's what's happening. It's not just the office market though, but think yeah. about Tom, all the restaurants and the retail right. that are dependent on those that come in to go to an office every day. And so yeah. that's, the, the ripple effect is really concerning. Yeah. And while the multifamily is called the tallest midget within commercial real estate, yeah. it has its own pressures too. And we're yes. seeing a lot of young people. We just forecasted for 2020 that the number of new households are going to decline to 890,000 from what had been running at a million three to a million four, really as we're starting to see tremendous number of young people that are moving back in with their parents or family or friends. Why should I pay this exuberant rent in New York City when my employer doesn't even need me to come to, to come to work and they're happy with me working remote. So you're seeing consolidation of households because of this great recession that we seem to, as the housing market is center stage and everything's going well, sometimes you forget like how bad it is out there for many people, yeah. whether it's you know the 15% of this 160 million employment base that are currently unemployed or furloughed. It's really, it's very challenging for many parts of the country. Yeah. Yeah. And I don't want to end on a low note, but I, I do agree. Like, you know, every one of us out there listening, you know, like you don't want to be running around going housing is killer because there is just, there's a lot of sectors that are losing. And, you know, again, I would say the same thing, just be empathetic, listen, you know, don't beat your chest, just do your job, help people that want to buy and sell real estate and you're gonna be just fine. So Ivy, as we wrap this up, obviously they should go to your website. Uh, I think it's just, is it zelman.com? ZelmanAssociates.com. ZelmanAssociates.com. I should know that, but it's just, you know, autosave. I just type in Ivy and there it is. Um, my friends, I strongly recommend you just look at what they do. You check out their information. If you follow us on This Week in Housing with, uh, with my friends over at KCM, I would argue that every deck we've done for the last nine months, there's been an Ivy Zelman quote inside there. So you guys understand you know, we do that show every other week. Now I get the legend on with you. So I hope you took a lot of notes as I did. Um, Ivy, just wrapping it up, just kind of closing thoughts from your perspective for all these, these wild and crazy rock star salespeople and entrepreneurs and business owners. Listen, this is an unprecedented time. And guess what, Tom? Interest rates are trumping COVID and we need to capitalize on it right now before it's too late. Well said. You brought it right back again. Ivy, you are the best. Love to the family, by the way. For, I'm, I'm watching. I saw your dog sneak in right behind you. Adorable. Yes. So, my favorite. <laughs> absolutely. The joys of working at home. So my friends, uh, I would strongly recommend you listen to this two or three times. You might want to even slow it down or speed it up and listen to it a couple times. Take lots of notes because there were so many nuggets inside here. You understand why I'm so... Just in you know, Tom, I would tell you too, just one other thing for those that want to watch our um, 
virtual summit, we had some really prominent um, brokers yes. as well as mortgage companies. We had Realogy, we had uh, Quicken on there, Wells Fargo. I'm trying to think of all the various panelists. Yes. Had, but yes. I think that it would be really helpful to get some perspective. And I moderated all the panels, so it was a lot of fun. Where do they get that? Is that at Zellman and Associates? Go to our website and um, it's on zellmanassociates.com and you'll see Housing Summit and just pull down. And for you, Tom, if they register, you can get the fam, uh, family and friends discount. There's only $550 per person. If you do more, you get a group discount. But normal, the Wall Street investors are spending thousands of dollars on it. So for your, for your listener, they mention you, we'll give them the discount. All right. So promo code Tom Ferry, everybody. Right. I'm, I'm going there and getting mine today. So thank you, Ivy. All right. So... Ivy, thank you so much for my friends out there. Like it, share it, give us a comment. Thank you so much for just being a podcast listener. And hey, keep up the good fight. Keep up the good work and let's finish this year strong. We'll see you guys soon. If you want more information about this episode, including my show notes, mentions, links, and everything else, make sure you visit tomferry.com slash podcast. That's tomferry.com slash podcast. Thanks again and talk to you soon.